media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. We'll open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6. I do want to thank Radley for preaching last week. A wonderful sermon. Carly and I were uh, at the beach and we tuned in to the, the live feed there. And it was wonderful just to be able to hear the word and that he gave from Revelation. I think a very important and timely word. Um, as you open up to Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 7, as we look back where we left off a couple weeks ago, uh, Anybody know what a rudder is? If you're uh, a pilot of either a boat or a helicopter or a plane, you know the importance of a rudder. It's really kind of small in size in comparison to the rest of the vehicle and the rest of the craft, and yet it is so powerful. That's why James uses it in the book of James to talk about how the tongue, even though it's really small in comparison to the rest of the body, that it's really, really powerful. Uh, here's the illustration of some big battleship, and yet you see... As, as you kind of look in that bottom one, that rudder is just that little piece there in the back, and yet plays such an important part. It, it helps it turn left and right. Without that, a plane, for the most part, is somewhat disabled. You still have other things, backup systems, and you can use some of the other things. I'm sure the helicopter is somewhat the same way. But all of a sudden, it's, it gets tense, because all of a sudden, the, the this little piece that is so important on that plane, on that ship, on that helicopter, whatever it might be, when it's gone or it's malfunctioning, all of a sudden your direction, your left and right, is really thrown off. Well, I want you to remember that this morning because when we get into God's word this morning, we're going to see that uh, uh, as parents, we are the ones that are to help direct and influence our children of going their left and their right, their up and their downs, and the scripture tells us that, that God has placed us there not just out of a matter of instinct, you could say that a baby cub learns from a mama, and some of that is instinct that God has built into uh, the animal kingdom. But when it comes to us as humans, we see that God is very intentional about his design for the family. He makes the family the foundation of all human society. The government did not, it's not the one that mandated that. It's not uh, that people got together and put a vote and said, okay, let's make the family the central focus. Now, from the very, very beginning, we see that God has intention all the way back in the creation of Adam and Eve. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And see, we, we see there the beauty of marriage. But we also see, even before they have children, that there is this intentional kind of growing time and then a leaving time. They didn't have a mother and father. And yet already in the instructions, we see the vision and the formation of what God has ordained. That's one reason why I think that the, the family unit has always been under somewhat attack. It's always been a, a thing where we see, the, especially in spiritual warfare, where the family unit and the family structure is one that is a great prize to Satan. That if he can interrupt the family unit as God designed it, then you bring disruption into just about every other factor of those people's lives. And we see that this morning because we're going to come upon a passage that is really captivating. It's one of those that in one way uh, is over the top in its elements of what's going on in the storyline. 
And yet there's a foundational principle that I want us to come back to and really focus on this morning. Whether you are a parent or not, whether you are a grandparent and you're in that grandparenting stage, because the lesson here and the direction here from this passage is, to me, overwhelming. Uh, The Bible makes it very, very clear that the role, the purpose of the parent is to direct the child. Uh, we see that in the simplicity of something like Proverbs 22.6, where it says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and then even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, what does that mean? Well, number one, we have to understand that that is a proverb. It is not a 100% truth. It's going to happen most of the time. We could say 98, 99% of the time. But God has given each individual, each child, a free will. If you're a parent, you understand that. <laughs> that as much as you say, don't do this, don't teach that. Don't. Uh, we were with our, our grandson the other night, and he just had some uh, surgery on Friday, and they have to keep a little 15-month-old boy, who is all boy, uh, still for the next two or three days. And we said no yesterday more than we probably have said no in, in the last two years because it's just everything about him wanted to go about. And yet we've understood really quickly. Here's our will. Here's his will. And so the, the Bible says train up a child. What does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew, it actually paints a picture. And this picture is a, a little tree. You know a tree about that thick in diameter and it's just kind of small? And have you seen in landscapes before where people actually tie, they use ropes to tie off that tree? They do that to kind of train the tree while it's young and tender so that it will stay up so that the wind blows and when this comes about, that it will stay upright in the direction that it wants to go. Well, you can cut those ropes as that tree gets a, a diameter or a circumference you know, of, of thicker and thicker and as it gets more and more and more, you can cut those those rows because now it has the sturdiness. That's the word picture in the Hebrew behind Proverbs and that instruction. When they're young, when they're growing, you've, you set that stage. You are a rudder in their life, helping them go left and right. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy the, the role of the parent. You shall love the Lord the God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This wasn't a strong suggestion. It was a command. Parents, here's your commandment to your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That is the ways of God and the commandments of God. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Throughout God's word, we see this continual reminder and instruction that as parents, we are to lead and direct our children. We are rudders that help them find that direction in their life. Now, what does that have to do with Mark chapter 6 and the ministry of Christ? Well, I think you're going to find out as we look into this story today. Again, when I say a story, I want you to know this actually happened. This isn't a fable. This isn't a, a moral parable. These events actually happened. And in John chapter 6, as we go back and pick up, if you remember, Jesus had dis- had sent the disciples out. They went from a place of observation, where they were observing what Christ would do, the teaching of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the healings of Christ. And now he said, oh, I want you to go out two by two, and now the ministry is yours. And you're doing the teaching. And he gave them the ability to heal the ability to do other things that, that before only Christ did. They went from a ministry of 
participation to a ministry of, I'm, I'm sorry, of observation to a ministry of participation. Several of us in here are grandparents. And several of us have raised our children. And now we, we remember those days that our children went from a ministry of observation and all of a sudden we sent them out into a world. Maybe it was when they went off to college. Maybe it's when they got married themselves and went out and they began to establish their household. And all of a sudden that, that lifestyle was not just observing us and learning of us, but now they were out there in the real world. And I can remember for Carly and I, as much as we loved our children and our girls, it was one of those we were excited to launch them, but it was also a scary time. Because you wondered, have I taught them enough? Have I shown them enough? Have they caught the vision? <laughs> because you understood that your role as a rudder was now kind of disconnected. <laughs> you're still there for them, and yet you're not there with them in a physical way like you were before. When we begin to get in this story here, we see that after the disciples went out, Jesus begins to, as he sends them out, he, he sends them out there to, to all this intensity. And one of the things that happens is that King Herod hears about the disciples going out. And he hears about the miracles that they're doing. He hears about the healings and all these other things. And people don't know what to make of that. Number one, they were already kind of didn't know what to make of, of the ministry of Christ. He grew up right here. Remember his own family thought that he was crazy? His own family and his own city kind of rejected him. We've just seen that happen in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Well, the talk was, who is this Christ? And now it's, who are his disciples? Why do they have this ability? It's one of the main differences that we find in in Mark chapter 6 is that we begin to see as they go out and begin this ministry, that the question comes out, what is this ministry all about? Look at Mark chapter 6. Let's start with verse 14 and 15. No, it says, King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Heard of the ministry of Christ. But most directly now, it's referring to that he has heard the ministry of the disciples going out two by two. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said that he's Elijah. And others said that he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Remember when Peter and the other disciples were asked, who do you say that I am? And they kind of gave this same list. Well, some people think that you're Elijah. Some people think that you're a prophet of old. Maybe Moses resurrected from the dead. All these thoughts were the talk about Jesus. Directly now, King Herod hears of all this. And he begins to, to think, why is all this happening? Why is this so special and why is this so intimate to King Herod? Because we're, we're going to find out as he talks, looking at the past, King Herod had put John the Baptist to death. Look what happens. Mark chapter 6, verse 16. All these people have all these thoughts about who the, the disciples are and who Jesus is. And uh, But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, is that a statement of faith or of fear? <laughs> In this case, it's actually a statement of fear. Because he put John the Baptist 
I mean, can you imagine if you had put somebody to death, you had beheaded somebody, and then all of a sudden you really think that that person is resurrected and coming back after you? And this is exactly what King Herod is thinking of. The whole problem started uh, before when John the Baptist was called to prepare the way for Christ. John was instructed to preach about repentance and about turning back to God because Jesus was coming, the Messiah, God's Savior. And so John the Baptist is out there with this ministry preparing the way, just as it was foretold in the Old Testament, just as it was ordained by the will of God, and he's doing all of that, and then Jesus comes. Well, what does that have to do with Herod? Well, in this message of repentance, in this message of turning back to God, um, there was a time when John the Baptist called King Herod out. Now, you don't have to have lived back in those days is it safe, is it wise to king out to call out kings in their sinfulness? Probably not. Herod probably was not used to being called out for his sins. Now, what was his sin? Well, number one, he, he was a sinner like the rest of us. Okay, that he shared with the rest of humanity. But in this particular case, he had married his half-brother's wife, and uh, John the Baptist was really quick to know that he had brought broken Levitical law. You could go back, we won't do it, but you can go back to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and said, okay, you don't take your brother's wife. I mean, after he's died, there was actually a command, you take care of them, and that might mean marry them, but not while your brother's alive. And that's what he did. And so they have this incestuous relationship, and John the Baptist comes along and says, King Herod, I don't care if you're king or not, this is wrong. Well, you can only imagine how Herod responded to that. He didn't like that. Like anybody, our pride kind of gets riled up when somebody says, you've done this wrong thing. But the one that really, really didn't like that was his wife. Really easy name to remember. His name is Herod. Her name is Herodias. Okay? (laughs) And so Herodias was inflamed about this. Look at verse 17. For it was Herod who who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. That's his illicit wife there. His brother Philip's wife because he had married her. So he gets the word out, the king doesn't like, but Herodias is inflamed. And she wants John the Baptist's death. Now there's an inference there in verse 17 when it says that, that Herod put him in prison. Many think that he actually put him into prison, John the Baptist in prison, to actually protect him. Because that Herodias just had all these plans maybe to take the, his life. But, but she couldn't. She, she couldn't without breaking the law. Somehow she wanted to be obedient to this law, but she didn't mind breaking God's law. But look at verse 19 and 20. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Well, what was going on in Herod's life? What happens in a lot of times of of a life of somebody who's inquisitive about spiritual things, inquisitive about Christianity? There's a part of them that does not believe. I do not believe that Herod was a believer. 
I do not believe that we could count him as a Christian here. And yet there were some things about Christianity and about Jesus and his uh, ministry and all those things that intrigued him. Have you ever had an occasion in a relationship with someone like that? That they're, they don't really want to follow. They're not surrendering their life. They're not maybe truly embracing Christ as Lord in their life. And yet they're intrigued. I do a lot of counseling. And it's amazing to me, a lot of people who I wouldn't say necessarily have committed their lives to, to Jesus Christ and, and are following as best as they can to that. And yet they come back to counseling week after week after week. And sometimes I'll ask them, okay, I don't know that you have a firm commitment to Christ. I, I'm not trying to be accusatory. I'm certainly not trying to be degrading or anything. But why do you keep on coming back? Because you're teaching us God's word. It's always been, I've always been amazed by that. I'm not ready to surrender my life to Christ. And, and yet I can tell that there's truth here. There's something life-changing in this. And, and maybe you've got family members like that or friends like that. that they're, they're not 100% opposed to Christianity, but they haven't embraced Christ as Lord. That's kind of where here it is because it says that, that he was greatly perplexed. And that perplexed could have come on his own internal thinkings, but also because he's married to Herodias and Herodias wants John dead. If we read Matthew's account in the parallel story there, we find out that another one of the motivations of Herod is that he feared taking John's life because the people loved John the Baptist. And he thought that there would be a revolt. That if he took John the Baptist's life, that somehow the people were going to have this uprising against Herod. And, and as you can, you know, if you look back in history, we always see that kings are in a very fragile position of their authority. You know, they're just a day away from a riot and an uprising and losing all authority. And that's where Herod is. So he's perplexed. But this is where the story gets really interesting to me and really ties into this whole idea of the powerful influence of parents. King Herod has a birthday, and he throws a huge party for all of his friends and business associates and the leaders of the army. And during the party... After they've kind of been drinking a little while and the party's getting later into the hours, uh, Herodias' daughter comes out. She's probably a teenager at this point, And she dances very suggestively in front of these men. Look what it says in verse 21, 22. But in opportunity, look at that third word, opportunity. This is from the ESV version. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. Again, do you notice the first words, the first phrase there in verse 21? But an opportunity came. In parenting... That is some of the most exciting and some of the most frightful words to a parent. That opportunity comes for a teaching moment. Have you ever noticed that teaching moments not, are not always planned? Do you remember the, the times if you were raising your children that, you know, there was times that you sit down, okay, tonight we're going to have a devotion. Tonight we're going to do this. Uh, you know, you're going to school. And so there's plan and structure times. But do you notice in raising your boys there, Aaron, that a lot of the teaching moments are not planned? 
Those are the best ones. They really are, and we're going to see that here. Maybe in a reverse way in this example. There's an old phrase that says, much more is caught than taught. Much more is caught than taught. Now, what do they mean by that? That by observation, by watching, there's a lot more than just the words that we say. I think every parent at one time has had that surprise when a word came out of your child, your young child's mouth, that you're going, where did they learn that? And then unfortunately you may have found out, well, they heard it right here. And all of a sudden you get this principle that much more is caught than taught. Because you would have never taught your child to say that, but maybe they picked that up just in, you know, family conversation or something that was going on and in a heated moment within the family. All of a sudden we recognize that teaching doesn't just happen in these structured times. So now look back at the, the, this birthday party of King Herod. Look at verse 22 and 23. And the king said to the girl, she has come out, she's danced suggestively uh, in front of these this crowd. And the king says to her, King Herod says, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now maybe it was the wine talking, maybe it was the cheers from a rowdy crowd. It could have been a a lot of different things. But King Herod puts himself and puts his word out there to this daughter of Herodias. What do you want? She could have had jewels, she could have had money, she could have had fame, she could have had power. There's a lot of things that she could have come back. But even though she's young, she comes back and actually does something that is somewhat wise, at least in theory. She goes to ask her mom. Verse 24. And she went out and she said to her mother, for what should I ask? Now, is that a wise thing? If she's a teenage girl... King had just said, hey, I will give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. Is it, you know, would a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl be wise to respond and just say, okay, here's what I've come up with. Is it wise to go to your parents and say, hey, you know, mom, this offer has just been given to me. What should I ask for? That part is actually wise in theory. But here's where the whole thing blows up. Look at the response of Herodias. Look at how the mom responds to her daughter. And she said that as Herodias said, the head of John the Baptist. Now where did that come from? In the spontaneity of this moment that really wasn't planned. It wasn't like it wasn't scripted out. Hey, after so many songs and after your dance, the king is going to give you this offer for up to half of his kingdom. This was not planned. This was spontaneous. This is one of those things where more is taught than taught. This was one of those that was outside the structure of a learning moment that was designed. And yet look at the power of this wrong answer. At this point, Herodias is a rudder in her teenage daughter's life. Can teach her the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, and unfortunately she does the worst thing. Now why would we say that it's the worst thing? Because in this crucial life-shaping moment, event in this young girl, 
She's asking for her mother for direction, and, and she seems open to whatever the mother would say. The mother passes on her pride, her hatred of John the Baptist, and her sin. Now again, theological guys, we're all sinners. You will give birth, if you haven't had children yet, you will give birth to children and they will be sinners. And they will give birth to sinners. When you married, you married another sinner. We understand this nature about us as humans, that we were born in this sin nature. And this is why Christ has come. But it's one thing to have a sin nature to deal with, and it's another thing to instruct a child in that nature of sin. And that's exactly what we see Herodias do here. She passes on her hatred, her her mindset, her grudge. Remember the verse before uh, uh, said that she had this grudge? When we think about things like generational poverty... When you think about generational things, that how easy it is to kind of come on to the next generation. And that's why, you know, again, things like ISERV, where, okay, we want to stop generational poverty. How? Because we're going to stop this direction. And sometimes when we think of something like that, we, you think of, okay, then, then we need to teach people to, you know, we need to give them food and, and equip them to be able to go and, and have food in their lives. But when it comes to sin in our lives, knowing that we are natural sinners, is it possible to pass on generational sin from parents to children. I mean, they're already sinners. The nature of sin is already there. Hatred, bias, pride. I mean, isn't that kind of an overwhelming thought if you're a parent or a grandparent? Isn't that kind of overwhelming? I mean, the heaviness of that, that, oh my goodness, I, I need to make sure that my life is right with Christ because the one thing that I don't want to pass on, even though that I know that my children are sinners, I don't want to pass on my generational sin to the next generation. One of the most incredible things to me is people who have not come from a Christian home, we've heard testimonies, and, and how God lays upon their heart as they start a family, hey, generational unbelief stops here. What an incredible gift. We're going to have children. We can't force them to accept Christ, but unbelief, we're going to do everything within our power by the grace of God to establish a gospel-centered, Christ-centered home because we want generational unbelief to stop here. To me, it's one of the coolest things that God enables the hope of a new family. But Herodias does just the exact opposite. Look what happens, verse 25 and following. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king, that is the daughter, and asked and saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was what? Exceedingly sorry. Remember he's perplexed. Remember he's kind of called in between. He doesn't really like John the Baptist in one aspect. He's kind of fearful what the people will do if he takes John the Baptist's life. And yet there's this part that is intrigued by the gospel. 
It's unlike anything that he's ever heard. And so he's perplexed. And so it says that he's exceedingly sorry. Number one, because he knows that there may be revolt within the kingdom because of his own heart. But look at that next word. But. But because of his oath to his guest. In other words, I said it. I'm the king. Now, could he have changed it? Yes. But his pride wouldn't let him. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king set an executioner with his orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And what's the last part of that? What's the last phrase in that verse? And the girl gave it to the mother. Do you see the connection there? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Mom, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist. Do you think that was on the mind of that teenage girl? When the king says, I'll give you half of my kingdom. You know, I was thinking maybe the head of John the Baptist. I don't know that she has any anger toward John the Baptist. I don't know how much recognition she has of John the Baptist. And yet, here in that Opportunity, remember it called it about an opportunity before? In this pivotal moment of this rudder of parenting where we shape the direction of our children's life, the mom plants the seed and the sin happens. Kind of a whole different twist to Proverbs 22.6. It's actually the same principle. Train up a child in the way they go and when they're old they won't depart from it. Folks, that can be very, very positive. It can be very, very negative. But here's the hope that Christ gives to you. And here's the hope that I want you to have today. Maybe there's been generational unbelief in your family tree. Isn't it so amazing that it can stop right here? Because God has placed you as a parent, as a rudder, as one that will give direction to your children. Two things, and then we'll close, and Kristen's going to come and share her testimony this morning. What do we do with this? Let's realize these two things about the great responsibility of parenting. Number one, we are to be very intentional and purposeful in our teaching. That's what we saw in Deuteronomy 6-7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, what? The commands of God, the ways of God, the knowledge of God, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, 24-7 job of a parent is helping to direct as a rudder the instruction. And this is talking more about formalized where you're, you're speaking it. In Psalm 78, this beautiful psalm, we're told about passing on to the next generation the mighty deeds of God. Psalm 78, verse 1 and 4 says, Give ear O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. We will not hide them from our children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his mind and the wonders that he's done. Well, what does that kind of infer? That you know, in a personal way, the glorious deeds of God. And so that comes to to the second point. The first one, very formal, intentional, purposeful. The second part of that is that we need to be prepared for those impromptu moments 
And Aaron, you were saying, those come almost more often sometimes. And those are really kind of these really teachable moments. So how do we prepare for that? By having a heart and a mind that is fully seasoned with the hope of Christ in your own life. That's what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 3.15. He wasn't talking just about parenting, but it certainly fits a parent for those impromptu times. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, even your children, who ask you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Formal times, informal times. Plans, things that are planned out and the things that are impromptu. What a high calling this parenting is. What a high, high missional calling this is to be a parent. But is there anything on this earth that is more rewarding, that is more thrilling, that is more exciting? Yeah, you, you keep telling me you love my story and it's making me very nervous. <laughs> no, it's the good. Um, so I'm Kristen. We've been here about 11 years at Cornerstone. Um, Craig is my husband. Kristen, will you tell him this morning and, um, and share with us your testimony? Uh, I, I love Kristen's story. We, um, and she's going to share with us this morning. And, um, and then, uh, despite all those wonderful things that I just told you, we'll I am somebody who absolutely has struggled with, with feeling us. enough in my life. And so that's uh, when Bobby asked me. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> what, um, if I would share, what came to mind immediately was, um, this this story, which um, hopefully is not going to get too long, but this story of of how God changed my mind from um, somebody who felt like I had to do and be and look a certain way, even at times, to um, to understanding what worth was in, in His His kingdom. So um, I'll just kind of start at the beginning. My my family. Um, My parents were divorced when I was five, and I had a younger brother. We went back and forth between the two homes, and um, it happened about the time that my dad gave his life to Christ. So I had this worldly home on one side, and then I had a father who was a Pentecostal, very zealous new believer on the other side. (laughs) And and it created a a fracture in my life. It it was, I felt like I had to be something different at each place. Um, And so very, very early on, I felt like I had to act a certain way, look a certain way, feel a certain way. Um, to be accepted and then you get to the school years and that kind of transformed into achievement um, sixth grade I decided I wanted to be valedictorian got that knocked off uh, junior year I went to, to college senior year went to college I graduated high school and then immediately graduated um, an associate's degree the next year so I knew how to achieve um, but that kind of got wobbly a little bit after that because I didn't really know where I was going. I, I knew how to drive the train. I didn't know um, where the destination was. So um, by that point, I'd met my husband. We had um, He had started a business pretty, pretty um, like three months in, and I'd left school to work with him. We were 19 and 23. Um, we still have that business today. Um, but 19 and 23, and the achievement piece kind of got fed by, oh, you guys are young entrepreneurs. You have a business that you started in your garage. And everybody wanted to hear that story. We were successful. We, I mean, we literally worked a few hours a day, um, made all the money that we could ever want, and um, it was the dream, dream life, right, the American dream. 
But then about eight years into that, um, my husband heard a message. We were both believers from, from pretty much when we met, We'd, um, but we, we weren't necessarily discipled in the right way, didn't, didn't know all the things to do, didn't know the right ways to, um, to fully give our life to Christ. But in 2009, um, my husband heard a message that changed his life, and seeing the changes in his life, his full surrender was very convicting for me. Um, I knew that there were things in my prayer life and my quiet time with the Lord that I, I couldn't lay down. Um, but a few months into him laying all his junk down, I said, okay, Lord, um, <laughs> obviously through lots of tears and um, speaking it now sounds a whole lot simpler than it was, but uh, lay down my marriage. Um, so at that point, my, the foundation of my marriage became more about my vow to the Lord and my love for him than about my love for my husband and my vow to him. Um, those things are important, but, but the, the, um, my vow to God was more important. Uh, would I ever be a mom? At this point, we were years into the possibility of that, and, and it wasn't happening. It's something I had wanted from the very beginning of, of uh, as long as I could remember. But I had to finally say, Lord, if that's not what you want for me, then I, I trust you to fulfill that in me. I trust you to take it away, whatever that looks like. Um, and I trust you with my security. That was the last piece. Um, the business had become about security for me more than the Lord had. Um, it had become um, about achievement. You know, I felt good about every about what I was doing every day. So um, about a year into that journey, I found myself no longer working in our business. It wasn't my choice. Um, it was the right choice for our family, but it was um, my husband's choice and it was hard because I, at that point I had to face everything and it was an unwinding process. And for me, that looked like sitting on the couch for a month crying every day. Um, I don't think anybody in my life knew that was going on besides my husband at the time, but, um, it, it was, it was hard to, to face who am I outside of what I do. And then a few months after that, when I finally felt like I was, um, coming out of it and, and maybe understanding a little bit more about who I was. We had a friend um, invite us to a uh, Christian business leader retreat. Uh, well, actually, it was a class, a nine-month class, but it started with a retreat. And I promise I'm getting to a, a point here. I know this is a long story. Um, so we we went that weekend. Well, let me back up a little bit. I begged God not to go because I really didn't felt, feel like I belonged there. Um but it got to the point that I felt like if I asked one more time, or certainly if I didn't go, that it was disobedience. So I showed up. Um, we were in a room with about 60 Atlanta business leaders, CEOs, CFOs from Coca-Cola, Hershey Family Entertainment, um, these huge companies. And to say that I felt insecure and unworthy to be there would be an understatement. It's like all my insecurities were shoved on a stage with a spotlight on them. Um, in addition to that, most of the, the people in the room were men, 90% of them, and most of them were about double my age. So it was um, it was a, a very low place for me, a very low weekend, a valley, if you will. Um, but the Lord used that weekend. He used those feelings of um, of insecurity, my quiet time with him, the lessons that were taught, the people that were there, and the parable of the wedding feast to teach me that um, just like in the parable of the wedding feast, um, 
The king invited the people who were supposed to be there multiple times, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. They were very rude about saying no, that they're not coming, and then he invited everybody, and um, good or bad, whoever would come. And there was a man there who came who was not wearing the right garment, and if you read kind of some of the subtext and um, and commentaries, you'll understand that that garment would have been given to him when he came in the door. So it's not that he um, didn't have the money or didn't have the means to to have this garment. He just had to put it on. And so that weekend, I just had to show up. In my life, my worth is just putting Christ on. And, um, and so that weekend transformed my thinking by showing me that it's not what I say. It's not what I do. It's not how I act. I'm worthy because Christ is worthy. And, and that's... That's the hope. That's that's the righteousness that I have in Christ. So, thank you. Amen. Kristen, that is wonderful. I love your story. And she has other stories that are just the miraculous things that God has done in her life. And uh, so I thank you because that is reflected in your life. And now she does have two beautiful, precious daughters. And, uh, and you've established a Christ-centered gospel home. And they're learning the things of Christ. So I thank God for his persistence in your life and you being a learning vessel to do that. Thanks so much for doing that. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we come and as we conclude this morning with song, Father, I love Kristen's story because, Father, if we really understand it, that is our story. Father, we can look at the theology and so where the Jewish people were rejecting Jesus and they were the ones that were your chosen people. And, and so he opens up the, the room for everybody else to come to this wedding feast. Father, there's so much theology. But when we get right down to it, Father, who are we that you, holy God, is mindful of man? Except that is who you are. And so today, Father, we conclude with, with this old song, Father. If we grew up in the church, we've probably sung it a thousand times. For Father, we come to you just as we are. Father, we don't come with pretense. We don't come with accolade and achievement. Father, we come in our need. And we come to you, a holy God who's redeemed us. Through the sacrifice and the gift of your Holy Son. So, Father, as we sing this song, Father, we usually associate this with salvation. And, and certainly, Father, if we don't know you as a, as a believer today, Father, this is still kind of our plea to you. But, Father, we can sing this song even this day as believers because this is who we are, Father. We come just as I am. And we come to you because of your adequacy. Father, help, especially as we talk about parenting today, Father, help us. What a... What a bold responsibility you've given to us. Father, help us that we would be intimate with you, walk with you daily, so that in those scheduled times and those unscheduled times, Father, 
We're just ready to teach our kids about Christ. We love you and we thank you. And we sing this song to you, Father. As we pray all this in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.